Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 3, Powers, Part 1. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel as we eagerly anticipate the DC Cinematic Universe. In this episode, we cover Kryptonian powers in Man of Steel and how they worked in the film. This episode is the first of a three-part series. Today, we'll cover superhearing, x-ray vision, and more. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that leaves a lot of wonderful room for interpretation and investigation. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for the fans who loved Man of Steel and who loved to chew their food. We'll start with diegetic analysis for what happened in the film, then analyze the creative decisions that took place outside the film. For now, we're doing general topic episodes like this one. Thanks for joining me. In the last two episodes, I started to do that Elton Brown thing where he says, but that's another show. But then I remembered Good Eats ended before he addressed any of those questions in That's Another Show. So rather than let these build up and go unanswered, I'm going to tackle as many of them as I can under the general umbrella topic of Kryptonian powers and weaknesses. This is not going to be your typical rundown of superpowers. If you've seen the science of Superman or things like that, we're going to have a little bit of that, but this is going to be a lot of just crazy fan theory. The approach we take on these things is how can we rationalize the powers to come to an understanding of the mechanics behind them? Not in in order to come to a physical reality of how they may occur, that ship has sailed, but rather to see what guided the creation of the film and how these may predict or project the use of Superman's powers into the future. We don't necessarily believe that the filmmakers plotted and planned out and worked out all these mechanics to this minute a detail, although they may have, but a lot of times in grasping at tradition or in trying to apply physics, there is an intuitive sense or a gestalt which binds and overarches over the entire work to bring it into a single cohesive piece that is consistent even if the creators did not explicitly spell out or understand those rules. To put it more simply, you can do a lot of things based on intuition where a lot of the underlying things are actually going to be instinctively and scientifically and surprisingly correct, even without expressly or explicitly laying those ground rules out. We're all experienced with life. We're all experienced with how things work. So whether we know it or not, a lot of times when we put together a piece of fiction or when we express things in art or when we even just say things out loud, there are all these underlying assumptions which we didn't even think about but which were built into the thing that we produced. That's part of the joy that I have in this podcast is trying to dissect things, pull it apart, challenge it with a bunch of different theories and see if we can't find out where the moving pieces are, where the underlying assumptions are, and maybe come up with a coherent or cohesive theory on how everything works. No promises, because after all, at the end of the day, it is a flying man with physics-defying abilities, but it's fun to try. And if you think it's fun too, stick around and listen to the podcast. So when I talk about a power, I'm not just talking about those things that we traditionally think of or ascribe to Superman. 
I'm including in that analysis powers, abilities, talents, traits that Superman has inherently that set him apart from others. To give you an idea, let's do a rundown of the topics that we're going to cover today. So first, Superman is a natural-born Kryptonian, the first in centuries. Second, he has the Kryptonian Codex within him. Third, he possibly has the ability to adapt his respiration. Fourth, he may have genetic memory. Fifth, super hearing. Sixth, x-ray vision. Seventh, heat vision. Eighth, super strength. Ninth, the holding of breath. Tenth, durability. Eleventh, super speed. Twelfth, flight. Thirteenth, telescopic vision. Fourteen, slow aging relative to humans. And finally, 15, telekinesis. Okay, so first up, we've got the fact that Kal-El is a natural-born Kryptonian, the first in centuries. Now, that doesn't seem like a power at first blush, but if you think about it, this is a society ingrained in eugenics and conditioning for who knows how long. The constraints of society limit crime, imagination, rebellion, but it also limits free will. Now, we'll come to that discussion later, but a lot of the proposed plot holes allege that Zod or the Kryptonians didn't do the right thing, could have had alternatives, should have done something else. But a lot of those holes are addressable or closed by the fact that these are eugenically programmed individuals who are conditioned from birth, either through society or perhaps through somatic programming, to do things a certain way, to view things a certain way. That very limited scope on how things run gives you a well-ordered machine, but it also prevents that machine from evolving or progressing or changing. And that stagnation can lead to the death and destruction of a society. And that seems to be what happened with the Kryptonians. Kal-El being freed from those constraints of programming, either by his genetics or by somatic conditioning, which they may undergo as children or may undergo as adults, or by the pressures of his society and community and the expectations of his culture and the demands of conformity, being freed from all those things, Superman has the opportunity to act freely and differently than any other Kryptonian would in ages or centuries. Again, it's not typically what we think of as a superpower, but it's something that really intrinsically sets Kal-El apart from the rest of the Kryptonians, even from the noble Jor-El. It's his upbringing, his culture, his genetics that prevents Jor-El from coming to Earth and starting anew. He knows within himself he has too much baggage, but Kal-El is liberated of all these things. Free will is something that we might take for granted as humans on Earth, but it's not something lightly given or assumed for Kryptonians. And that's why it's my number one power that sets Superman apart. Now, next up, we have the Kryptonian Codex. Superman was used as a information storage medium, the DNA of a billion people bonded to his cells. So this could take some time to explain, to show my work. I think what I'm going to do is just skip to the answer, and then we'll go back and try to explain it. Uh, We'll go back and explain what the how I arrived at that answer. So the codex, informationally, is encoded onto the replicating blood cells. This addresses how Jaxer was able to see that Kal-El contained the codex from a blood sample and why the microscopic view that we're given in the movie 
displays red blood cells. But that doesn't explain why Jaxer wasn't able to recover the codex from just the sample. If the database is in Kal-El's blood and it's a replicating database, then why can't retrieving just a sample of the blood provide him the entire codex, right? My answer for that is that the data was encrypted. And the question is, where then is the encryption key? The encryption key to the database is encoded onto the inner portion of the crystalline lens of Clark's eyes. Why? Because red blood cells, at least in humans, have a lifespan of approximately 120 days. If Kryptonians are similar, and we have reason to believe that they are, none of Clark's red blood cells would be the same ones that he had as an infant if the database was literally bonded to the specific red blood cells, then they would have all been flushed out of his body a long time ago, and the codex would have been lost. However, if the database was encoded to appear on whatever red blood cells he generated, then Jaxer would be able to draw a blood sample, see that there's extra information in Kal-El's DNA, but the encryption prevents Jaxer from actually utilizing the data until he obtains the key. Now, in humans, and I'm presuming in Kryptonians, there are some cells that we have throughout our lifespan, such as cortex neurons. However, I'm assuming Jor-El wished that the information would be a little more readily available. So it makes more sense to encode the information onto the eye rather than forcing people to drill into Kal-El's brain. Therefore, in theory, all one needs is a drop of Kal-El's blood and a molecular scan of his eye and the codex is theirs. This answer reconciles what we saw in the movie. It explains why you can draw some blood and have some information, but not all the information. It also explains why you can let Kal-El die and still recover the information afterwards. And it also reconciles seeing those red blood cells in the movie, which we know generally do not last a whole, uh, a whole person's lifespan. If those red blood cells were to last a Kryptonian's entire lifespan, they wouldn't be fulfilling the function that red blood cells normally do. So rather than that, we're going to assume that uh, red blood cells in Kryptonians work the way they work with humans. Incidentally, there might be more than one codex, but that's another show. So what's the implication of all this extra Kryptonian data in Superman? Well, simply put, we don't know. The primary purpose, from what we can surmise, was either to act as an arc of Kryptonian genetic information, perhaps for their eventual resurgence, but it also may have been a largely symbolic act. That's another show. But it could continue to be either a MacGuffin or just a nice touch or something that they never follow up on. Now, if my encrypted theory is correct, then the database isn't inherently meaningful as is without the encryption key, and therefore those genes shouldn't interfere with Superman's person. But what's interesting is that a would-be bioengineer trying to clone Superman might not recognize that the added information as encrypted isn't meant for replication, and they might do their best to replicate it onto their clone, but the resultant imperfection and confusion could net us the rogues from Superman's traditional roster like Bizarro, Doomsday, Parasite, etc. Okay, Another possible power is number three, respiratory adaptation. It's something that he did as a baby, and it's not certain that this is its own unique or separate power. It may have just been a side effect of him being bathed in the radiation of the yellow sun and therefore 
hyper durable and stronger. But at the end of the day, he did adapt. And if we look at Lois, an adult human who cannot survive in Krypton's atmosphere without a helmet containing a breather, and Clark, as a baby, being able to survive and adapt to Earth's atmosphere, there is an argument that perhaps this is something that Kryptonians are capable of doing. When Clark first arrives on Zod's ship and starts experiencing the weakness from the Kryptonian atmosphere, Zod says something to the effect of, whatever's happening to him, it has to run its course. He's implying that adaptation is expected. Maybe not that Superman is going to adapt and overcome the K-weakness, but perhaps that this sort of coughing fit, this pain, this gasping, this unconsciousness will be overcome eventually. And that's what we see in the movie. Eventually, Kal-El wakes up from blacking out. It should be noted that enhanced durability doesn't automatically assume respiratory adaptation. I think there's a movie that everybody out there may know. Let me provide a spoiler alert for a 14-year-old movie, Unbreakable. It's an M. Night Shyamalan movie, so you probably expect that there's a twist. Well, in the movie, there's a physically unbreakable individual. He's invulnerable to physical damage. For that reason, he can sort of push his body to the limits, perhaps lift more than a normal person would normally be able to lift, but he's still susceptible to drowning. And therefore, it's possible to separate these two abilities. And so this might be a separate and unique ability for Kryptonians. It also might be that Earth's atmosphere is just simply a plus factor and is in no way a negative but if that's the case, I'm not completely sure why it would cause respiratory distress in a baby to cause him pain or, or trouble if everything coming from Earth's atmosphere is good. So there is some sort of adaptation that Kryptonians are more innately able to do or have that apparently is a little bit beyond just the human range. Now, I'm going to continue to maintain that the prequel comic is possibly not canonical, but we do get a hint of information there that also supports this theory that Kryptonians can perhaps breathe a little bit beyond their range. And that's the scene where Kara and company are training or testing for an away mission as if they had landed on an extraterrestrial planet. And in the parameters of the mission, the idea is that they go around, and they scout the environment, they look around, and if it's suitable then they terraform it. If this is a full field operation and they're in complete gear and they're practicing as if this was a real mission, they should be wearing respiratory helmets, right? They should be in full sort of space gear, assuming that the planet can't support their breathing habits. But instead, they go about this whole training exercise without helmets, without breathers, as if they were comfortable with the atmosphere. What that suggests is when they land on a planet, that they think is at least within habitable range, they should be able to get out, explore, and run a series of scouting missions without helmets on, and then go back and terraform the planet within comfortable Kryptonian parameters. This supports the view that the world engines have a much more limited ability to terraform environments than a lot of people out there are assuming. One of the common objections or alleged plot holes to this film is, why didn't Zod just go and terraform Mars? Why didn't he find just some other planet and terraform it? Well, you have to remember that when we saw the outposts, they were dead. There was no atmosphere. Zod was walking around in an astronaut spacesuit with a 
full dome and environmental hazard suit. That suggests that either those outposts weren't habitable, they couldn't be converted into colonies or habitable worlds, or that terraforming performed by the world engines is maybe only temporary, or that the world engine ability is a much more narrow band. It can only terraform within specific parameters. Uh, the planet has to be much closer to Krypton's desired conditions before a world engine can even be effective. This is consistent with the fact that there were no colonies, right? As Doomsday approached for Krypton, they didn't say, let's simply flee to the colonies because there were no colonies. Apparently, they had never successfully found or terraformed another planet into a sustainable, continuing sister planet or colony for Krypton. And so with such narrow parameters, that addresses a lot of other alleged plot holes, but that's another show. Now, getting back to respiration adaptation, we'll talk a little bit more about this with Clark's ability to hold his breath, but there is possibly some evidence of respiratory adaptation. There is the possibility that Superman's ability to tackle the world engine towards the end of the film is also additional proof or an example of him being able to adapt his respiratory patterns. We can't say that he was holding his breath the whole time. We did hear him audibly cough and choke, so he was breathing in the atmosphere that the world engine was producing. We don't know in what concentration. We don't know how much. There were so many other X factors that this is not dispositive proof by any means, but it would be possibly another thread into the theory or the idea that Superman can adapt to different atmospheric conditions. We certainly did see him throughout the movie survive in an oil rig fire, to not drown while being underwater for long periods of time, flying up into the stratosphere and beyond into space at least three times in the movie, and traveling at phenomenal speeds, which would also cause respiratory issues. And we'll talk about that more in the flight or super speed sections coming up. So just some thoughts to think about. It's not a traditional Superman power, but in projecting forward to future films, what that might mean is that he may not have a Kryptonian air weakness anymore. In theory, that would mean even if you were to reproduce Krypton's atmosphere, Superman could and possibly did already adapt to and overcome that particular weakness and would be consistent with his history of overcoming it. It's not completely out of whack. In fact, if you go back through traditional Superman comic books, it's actually a recurring theme with Superman and Kryptonite. As he gets more powerful over the ages, as he becomes more seasoned and used to things, he develops a immunity or a resistance to Kryptonite. So that might mean that in subsequent films, you won't be able to rely on Kryptonian atmosphere as a kind of weakness that you might want to try to pull out of your hat. And that's even if anybody even knows about it. I believe within the continuity of the film right now, it's basically Clark and Lois that know about the specifics of that particular weakness. And I'd hope and I'd pray that in this universe, she understands that keeping something like that to herself is probably wise. <laughs> All right. So that's the... Um, the possibility of Superman adapting to respiratory issues or adapting to atmospheric issues. Okay, number four, and the last of my weird esoteric sort of theoretical powers is genetic memory. Although Kal-El himself is not directly a product of the Kryptonian eugenics program, his parents were. And so there may be some innate things essentially programmed into Clark, 
even though he's the product of random genetic combination of his parents. Nothing so specific as to violate his free will, but perhaps to make him more predisposed to certain things. For humans, addictions and dependencies, for example, can be passed down genetically, uh, as well as by upbringing. So this might be something that we could find in a Kryptonian as well. Jorel was a brilliant scientist. He developed a number of novel technologies. That's another episode. So Clark may be predisposed towards science and intelligence. We did see in the movie that he won a science fair. So Kal-El may have super intellect within him just by his genetics. Incidentally, I raised this primarily because of a Yahoo Movies Q&A hosted by Kevin Smith. The Q&A was for the Blu-ray release of the film. Snyder and Adams were in the studio with Smith, and I think Cavill joined them by satellite. In that video, and you can look it up online and see it, Snyder answers the question of Clark playing in a cape as a child. And what Snyder said was that Clark wasn't imitating Superman, obviously, because Superman didn't exist yet, but instead he was imitating a Kryptonian. It was that inclination being inside himself. Now, as a creative point, he also said that that was Pa Kent's moment. It was to show that although Pa hadn't lived to see Clark as Superman, he had seen the greatness inside of him. And that was you know, it was a moment to show that Pa Kent had seen Superman in a way and in a fashion. We don't know what else is laying dormant within Kal-El. We don't know what other predispositions or inclinations or talents are still within him because of his genetics. So that's the last of my crazy ones. Let's get to the traditional powers that everyone's more interested and excited about. You might not have noticed, but I've been actually walking through these powers sort of chronologically as they appear, not in the film, but throughout Clark's life. So the first couple of ones were all very Krypton heavy because they were things that were in Clark even before he left Krypton, although they may have been exhibited later, for example, the respiratory power. So moving forward, we're going to start talking about the powers that manifest themselves more apparently on Earth because of the yellow sun. Okay, so now we're at the powers that everybody's more familiar with and hopefully a little bit more excited about. Number five is super hearing. And the first time we see in the chronology of Clark in the movie exhibiting any kind of powers is at the age of nine. He's in grade school and he starts to have a, a sensory attack in class. And the first power that we get to see exhibited is his super hearing, hypersensitivity to sound hearing things off from a long distance and amplification of sound. And we see the power used a couple more times in the movie when Superman rescues Lois from the pod. They're having a moment, but then he hears Martha in distress back at the farm and takes off to rescue her. We also see that Zod and Feora crumble in battle because they can't handle the overwhelming increased sensitivity or amplification of sounds and senses that Clark experienced at a young age. But we also see that Clark gets surprised by Lois in the Arctic, and he gets surprised by Zod in battle. So that leads people to object and say, well, if Superman has super hearing, shouldn't he have known that those things were coming? And I think it's really easily addressed by sort of software processing. The way that we process sound 
We are always hearing, but we're not always listening. You, you can't tell me that you haven't had a time where you were sitting in class and then you sort of zoned out, right? You didn't have your hands clasped over your ears, blocking out the sound. It was still reaching your ears, triggering your nerves, and going to your brain, but perhaps at some point your brain sort of cut it out or shut it off or didn't hear or didn't listen to what you were hearing. And so that sort of psychic gate might be the focus that Clark is talking about, that he developed at a young age in order to close out all these noises, all these distractions, all these confusing and useless information that largely isn't relevant to him. If you're living in a busy, uh, informationally dense world with heightened hearing and abilities like that, then it makes sense for you to have that gate on most of the time. We understand that animals like dogs and cats all have heightened hearing and they're around us all the time, but they're able to make do and survive despite all these extra distractions because they also have this same kind of ability to shut out what they feel is irrelevant and not necessarily salient to them at the moment. There is another possible way that Clark could control his super hearing, and, and it goes beyond just pure software processing. There is a thing called the acoustic reflex, and I encourage you to wiki it. You can read the whole full article in there. Another name for it is the stapedus reflex. And the idea is that the oscillating part of the eardrum, the stapes, pulls away from it in response to sort of muscular stiffening in order to reduce the sensitivity of the ear so that less is transmitted to those nerves and subsequently to the brain. And it's supposed to reduce the transmission of super loud sounds. Now, if Superman is the kind of individual that has extraordinary control of his own physical body, or perhaps this is just a Kryptonian instinct or something that he just developed over time, uh, a particular talent, then it would be a more mechanical or physical way of actually reducing his sensitivity to sound within ranges that are more comfortable and reasonable to him. Now, talking about super hearing, one of the things that I like to raise all the time, only because it's kind of intuitive to me, is the idea of this, of the extraordinary range of his ability. I think in most traditional tellings of Superman, he's able to hear things from across the city, even from space, across the globe. And I don't really think that that's super hearing. From a mechanical standpoint, sound is a wave and it can only travel so far. Even if you were to bring them down into extraordinary low frequencies, the maximum range that you could get out of this is maybe around 20 miles. And at a certain point, that sound is not going to propagate any further, at least not in any sort of meaningful way. The air molecules bouncing against other air molecules is going to be drowned out by just the chaos of normal molecules vibrating as they do. So at a certain point, it doesn't matter how sensitive your hearing is, the sound just will never ever reach you because it never ever traveled that far. What I did was I coined the phrase auditory omniscience. So really, as long as Superman is near or on the earth, he has the ability to know what's going on anywhere on it as if he were there or within earshot and interprets that information as sound. But really, it's not so much a super hearing ability. But we'll talk about that more as we go down into these other powers, because a lot of these powers sort of have that sort of overlap. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to debunk Superman. I'm not trying to say 
that he doesn't make sense or that his powers don't work the way that you think they work. I'm simply highlighting the tropes in play and the ways that the powers typically manifest themselves. And when we see those patterns, then we can use them to predict or project how they should be used in the future. So for example, if I limited myself to saying that Superman just has super sensitive hearing, then mechanically, that would only allow him to hear out to maybe say, 10 miles or something along that kind of line. He could, again, hear out much further if there's super low frequencies, but that wouldn't encompass most of the kind of things that we traditionally have Superman hearing. Alternatively, you'd have to have Superman actively project some sort of energy or information out there and have it come back and reinterpret it as you know an auditory signal. That's another strange mechanic we could talk about. Quick aside, I don't know if you've looked this up or seen it recently, but it's been making the rounds on the internet. There's the idea of the potato chip microphone, right? So you may have seen in movies or read in fiction the idea of measuring vibrations coming off of glass to use it as a remote vi microphone where you could pick up sounds not through the sensitivity of a microphone again you wouldn't be able to hear the sound coming off that glass across the street or from whatever great distance but with a laser beam you'd be able to collect that information off of the glass right so you may be familiar with that but recently researchers have found that if using a laser beam or something to the same effect they were able to even pick up sounds and vibrations or translate movement into sounds and vibrations off of say a Pringles chip sitting in the room or a plastic leaf for a decorative plant that's in the room. So one way we could rationalize Superman's super hearing is if it actually is a function of his super sight and that somehow he's actually processing the minutia or that super minute motion and he's interpreting it as sound within his brain. But that would limit him to only seeing within line of sight and you know again that would completely change the mechanics of how Superman's powers work. So rather than that, after collecting this data and we kind of see that he has this sort of auditory omniscient power, he has the ability to hear Martha in distress well beyond the range of the, that those sounds would travel, well, now we know that it's fair game and we know that that's the way that his power can be interpreted in the future. So that's the only reason we, we're, we're sort of drawing this out. It's not, again, an indictment of Superman or to debunk Superman. It's to give us greater insight into how he should be written and how he will be written in the future. Okay, so enough on that. Let's take on the next topic. Okay, so the next power that we see, number six, is x-ray vision. We see Clark look at his elementary school teacher and he sees her lungs, he sees her skull. It has a x-ray-like effect, but not explicitly x-ray because he is able to make out organs and more details than traditionally show up in a normal x-ray pattern. But at the same time, he isn't getting, say, color information. He isn't necessarily getting the same sort of see-through effect that we may have seen on other shows or other variations of Superman. So the other time that we do see the power used is twice with Zod. We see Zod look at his hand and see through it. So we see this sort of skeletal blue view as the tradition of how this is normally seen. The other time that it is implicitly used is when Clark first meets Lois and looks at her wound and assesses it, presumably with his x-ray vision. 
So what does this tell us? Well, it gives us some potential guidance on how Superman may or may not deal with Batman in Batman v Superman. In October of 1997, there was a three-part television movie for the Superman animated series. It was a crossover with the Batman animated series entitled World's Finest. And it was the first meeting of the two and the beginning of a shared universe between the two for what would become the very exciting DC Animated Universe or DCAU. And if you hadn't seen it, stop the tape right now. Don't listen to anything further. I don't want to ruin or spoil it for you. Go and watch that. Then in your leisure time, come back and listen to my podcast. Although to be honest, if you hadn't seen that, I think you'll enjoy it and I I will have lost you forever because all you'll be doing is watching DCAU episodes for the next month or so. But when you get done with that and come back to me, we can talk about it. And uh, what we will talk about is that brilliant scene where Superman uncovers Batman's identity in the most elegant and easy way, which is X-ray vision. He simply looks through the mask and recognizes one of the world's most prominent and famous playboy billionaires, Bruce Wayne. Now, in other renditions of their first meetings, Superman is more of an established character. He's been around for some time, and the parameters of his powers are a little bit better known. So a lot of times, when Batman meets Superman for the first time, he has a lead-lined cowl. And lead, traditionally, in other renditions of Superman, is a way of blocking or barring Superman's X-ray vision or ability to see through things. As analogous with traditional X-rays and lead vests that you may wear to protect the rest of your body or your organs from those damaging or penetrating X-rays. But in this version of Superman, he's only been out there for a while, and as far as we can tell, there is no lead-based limitation on his powers. Nothing in this movie suggests that Superman can't see through lead. We didn't get the cute little scene that we got in Superman the movie where Superman peeks at Lois's panties, right? So that limitation isn't something that's clearly spelled out for us, and it's not in the print or in the press or in the public as it was in some other renditions of Superman. So when Superman meets Batman for the first time, why doesn't he just peer through the cowl and recognize him as Bruce Wayne? Well, the movie sets up that Superman doesn't necessarily get that same level of just clarity and vision and color information and flesh tone information that he would in some maybe other renditions of Superman. So for example, traditionally in Smallville, it looked like an x-ray except for that one scene where he looks through to the girl's locker room, right? Or in Superman Returns, it acts more like an MRI and he is able to see through things in slices and so he still gets that full sort of optical color information in this case if the information that superman gets is literally the same thing that we see through their eyes when we're looking as young clark and looking as zod first discovering his x-ray senses or x-ray perception then if clark were to look beyond the cowl it would be like that scene from again spoilers for the dcau It'd be like that scene where Lex Luthor pulls off the cowl of the Flash and says, I have no idea who this is, right? We don't generally recognize people by their skeletal makeup and musculatures, right? <laughs> it's not something that we have trained our eyes to be able to see. 
Now, Clark having this ability, uh, he could train himself to sort of reconstruct what people would look like based on their musculatures. He could train to stare at people and say, you know, I'm starting to be able to recognize people by their x-ray profile or by their skeleton, uh, musculature or, or by skeleton. But that information wouldn't translate to his ability to recognize Bruce Wayne, at least not typically, right? If he sees Bruce Wayne on a magazine or in a newspaper or on television, no amount of x-ray vision of that reproduction of the image is going to provide him that skeletal or uh, musculature information. The only other way is if Superman made a habit of x-raying everybody's face that he came into contact with and categorizing and cataloging those faces and structures to the point that he could recognize anybody with or without you know, masks, with or without x-ray vision. That is a way they could go with it, but I think that makes Superman a little more alien, a little less grounded, and I think the approach they're trying to take is that this is a man with extraordinary power, but ultimately he's a man. He behaves, thinks, and mostly acts like a man, and that kind of sort of bizarre cataloging is just a little creepy, to be honest. <laughs> uh, you know, Clark could go into this sort of in-depth forensic study where he says, I know where you know, when you have muscles like this and bones like this, it creates a face that looks like this. But it's just, it's a little bit out of the realm of where I think we want a grounded, normal sort of human character Clark to be at. So it's my guess that he won't necessarily be able to just peek beyond the mask and say, you're Bruce Wayne. Now, all of this is based on the limited information we do have about x-rays. The only time we get those first person's perspectives on the x-rays are with Clark at nine and with Zod just coming into his powers. And both of those examples are early within the development of those powers. So for all we know, down the road, Clark gains the ability to see more like an MRI, see more traditionally, gain more color information and other kinds of information uh, through his x-ray vision. It's not just limited, limited to that skeletal view that we saw in the movie. Now, it may have sort of been subjectively hinted at, or it may have been hinted at uh, with sort of the other examples that I mentioned before, but x-ray vision and the super hearing that we mentioned earlier are both supreme tests and proofs of Clark's character as a man. I don't want to get too much into it because now we're sort of leaving the, the diegetic. But they're powers that can be used without revealing your use of those powers. Because of that, they're powers that are tempting to use and abuse all the time. And as far as we can tell, Superman hasn't used or abused those powers, at least for personal gain, right? He didn't go to say, Las Vegas, and use his x-ray vision to look through the poker cards, if indeed he could do that, right? We were, again, we're not sure how much information he can glean uh, if he could just look through the skin of the cards. And just so you know, there's a wonderful Roll Doll short story about those sort of ESP powers. The name escapes me. It's worth a read for a young adult or maybe for your child, maybe for your kids. But it is a sort of in-depth exploration of just this one power of x-ray vision. So the, the self-restraint that Clark has to show in using his powers, his aud audible powers not to eavesdrop and using his x-ray visions not to violate people's privacies or gain uh, personal advantage, resisting that temptation 
continually and throughout his developing years and into adulthood, it's part of the forge that makes him a man of integrity, a man of steel. So we'll, of course, come back to all these things in our in-depth analysis of the movie as we go forward. But today's episode is focused on powers. So one more quick point about X-ray vision. I think traditionally the power has actually been tied to heat vision, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But traditionally, the power was actually an active ability. He actually shot X-rays out of his eyes and those would penetrate the the object and the reflection would come back to him and that's how he's able to perceive or see through objects. In the Adventures of Superman series with George Reeves, there was actually a scene where he would ask the bystanders around him to leave the room for their safety because he was about to bombard the evidence with x-rays. So that was the old way that the x-ray vision used to work. In more modern times, it seems to have become a more passive ability. In other words, he doesn't actually project or eject anything from his eyes in order to see through things, and therefore there's no risk of wound or injury to his use of the power. But, for example, in talking about why Superman wouldn't develop a habit of memorizing people's skulls, it may be because in this version, he does maybe still have an active x-ray vision. And rather than subject everyone around him to x-ray or radiation from his eyes, he takes a more reasonable track and limits the use of it to when the situation really demands it. So if that's the case, then he's not bombarding everybody that he meets with x-rays so that he can study their skulls and become this expert in being able to identify people by their skeletons. And so that's how it ties to Batman v Superman. Let's move on to the next power. Thanks so much for listening. I love discussing this stuff. And if you've been sticking with me for this whole thing, hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful to each and every one of you who listen and hope you'll join my community at manofsteelanswers.com. That way, if you have any questions that you want answered or insights you want to share or commentary to make, you can post in our forums for all your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at manofsteelanswers.com and maybe I'll address your question on the air. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your Man of Steel apologist, signing off, and see you next time. You're the answer, son.